Well, as you know, we're preaching our way through the Gospel of John, and we come to John's account of the crucifixion. And it's been wonderful examining in the last few weeks how John concentrates. You know, all the other Gospel writers concentrate on some of the details that John does not include, including some of the sayings of the cross and some of the, some of the matters of the individual disciples' lives. Where John's Gospel is different is that he takes the surroundings of the uh, crucifixion, that which encompasses the crucifixion and ties in um, how everything is made by God to focus on that crucifixion. The world systems, the politics that surround, all of them answer prophecy. But tonight, we're going to talk about the distractions that were around that crucifixion and how the presence of God was so manifest even in the distractions. If you have your scriptures with you, with you, turn to the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John. Now, if you don't have your scriptures, you can just read it on the back of your newspaper. The sermon text is written there. Um, that's a New American Standard. Mine's just a little bit different than that. That's, I've got an NAS also, but Becky says that doesn't match exactly. She's going to get me updated with you in just a minute. Uh, but starting with verse 17, here's the story for the night. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to a place called the Place of the Skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, this inscription, many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus, by the way, remember that, because there were many Jews there at that point. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. Now, I want you to see what happened both literally and figuratively here. The fact that that proclamation of his kingship is written in three different languages is very significant. First of all, so that you could understand this was a cosmopolitan city and there were people surrounding who could read all of those languages. But even more significantly, for the figurative value it had. You see, there are three significant arenas of meaning in life, three significant areas of influence. One is the area of religion. In this day, Judaism occupied a very developed theology, a very developed culture of religion. And so Hebrew could have been representative of the religious area of life. Latin, on the other hand, was the official language of the Roman Empire. And of course, the Roman Empire symbolized all that was power, all that was government, all that was control. And then, of course, Greek was the symbol of all that was culturally sophisticated. For centuries, the Greek culture had produced in Western civilization the most significant literature and drama um, and sculpture and other forms of art, uh, the most significant philosophy on the face of the earth. And so here 
in every language and in every major arena, there was a proclamation of the kingship of Christ. Very important. Because God still has signs in every major arena of your life of the kingship of Christ, if you have eyes to see. Read on with me. It says this, verse 21, And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write, King of the Jews, but that he said, I am King of the Jews. But that he said, I am King of the Jews. You get the little jab here? Now look at what Pilate's response is. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now there could have been two reasons for that. You can choose one or you can choose both. Number one, Pilate had been soundly defeated in his political attempt to free Jesus. And you know how it is when you lose a fight. You're just kind of still boiling about it. And you want to get the last shot, even if it's a little one, even if it's a meaningless one. And so it could be just his human flesh that says, look, I'm at least I can do the sign. I don't have to give in to you on the sign. And so there could be just this human little repartee going, little, little slam. But I believe there was something more going than that. I, I believe that there was a sense in Pilate of who Jesus really was. I believe there was a power in the presence of Christ then as there is now. And I believe that this may have been some meager attempt at some poor religion to give some minimal expression to the Lordship of Christ. But for that reason, at least it deserves some attention. There is a now probably what can be termed as a semi-classic uh, called The Robe. It's a novel written by Lloyd Douglas. There's a scene in that novel about this slave, Demetrius. And Demetrius has heard all about Jesus. And, and so that one part of his life, he hears there's going to be an assembly around Jesus. And so he goes, he, he kind of snakes his way into this assembly and he kind of shoulders his way to the front. It happens to be on the occasion that we call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, celebrating and proclaiming Christ King. Well, Demetrius goes ahead just curious, and, and as he breaks through the crowd, Jesus is riding by, and he looks at Jesus. He's in the presence of Jesus as Jesus makes contact with him. And something happens in his life, something that he cannot yet articulate. Not a little while, or not, a, not a long while later, another slave comes up to him, also curious because he's heard about Jesus, and he begins to question Demetrius. So, did you see him? Yes. So is he crazy? No. And the slave is so rocked back, he goes to the other extreme. He says, so is he really a king then? And Demetrius tries for an answer. No. Not a king. Well, what then if not a king? I don't know, but something much more than a king. There was a power in the presence of Christ, as there is today. And I believe that this response by Pilate 
could have been given some tribute to that power. I hope that your response to Christ is not nearly so suppressed as his. It says in verse 23, The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. I want you to get a a picture. Let's spend just a little bit of time on this verse because this is a very important graphic rendition of the, of the, uh, the crucifixion. Here are soldiers doing their job, and there are details to their job, both, both distasteful and profitable. That is to say, they've got work to do, but why they have signed up for this grim duty uh, may have something to do with the spoils that they get. You see, they get to divide up those meager belongings that are left after the crucifixions. And so here they are dividing up the clothes. There's honor even among thieves, you know. They're trying to be fair, a piece here and a piece there. But I want you to see the posture that they must have while they're dealing with the details of gain. While they're dealing with the details of the business that they're in. Because the posture demands that they look down. And if they are looking down, they cannot be looking up. And so they miss what is significant in life, what could save them in life. Years ago, I read a story. I think it's a true story about Flight uh, 401 Eastern. Some of you read uh, about this this particular flight that that crashed in a swamp. But some of you didn't read the reason. There was, a, shortly after takeoff, this red bulb flickering. This bulb that's supposed to meant danger. And they were trying to figure out if there was a malfunction in the bulb or there really was danger. And they spent so much attention on this thing and it so preoccupied the cabin that the plane crashed. For the malfunction of a 75-cent bulb, they didn't look up long enough to survive. How many of you are so preoccupied with the details in your life right now, you're missing life? You're missing what gives you life. Oh, it's your business, I understand. But how have those details overtaken every sense of perspective that you used to have about life? How are you so trapped in your attention that you have no time to look up anymore? There's a warning in this scripture for us. There's a warning in this posture. But read on from there. It says there was another garment, one that could not be divided. It was a tunic. Woven, seamless, never sewn by the hands of men. Now, I want you to know that in all probability... This tunic, this chiton, I think is the, is the technical name for it, was one that was the most intimate with the body of Christ. It was nearest him. It was, it was part of his wear. His, it was his most intimate garment. And I want you to notice, no, the high priest also wore one of these. And I want you to see the significance. Priest... The priest has a function. As a matter of fact, the word priest in Latin is pontifex. 
and pontifex literally means bridge builder. The function of a priest is to build a bridge between heaven and earth, between God and people. And so Jesus, in doing what he was doing, literally became the high priest that Hebrews calls him because he built that bridge permanently instead of intermittently as the other high priest did. But I want you to see more significance in this garment than just the high priest wore one too. Because in the early writings of the church, Cyprian, for example, writes about the metaphoric value of this garment. This garment that has not been sewn by the hands of men, that has no seam, that is one indivisible garment. And he says, that's like the church. That God has woven us into this garment, intimate with Christ. You know, over your lifetime, there will be a lot of people that come into the church and go out of the church. There will be a lot of people that just kind of hang on the outside of the church. And they are very well distributable. Very, I'm not, not distributable in, in our sense. I mean, very well um, dividable from, from, the, from the core that does not last. But there is a core. There is a church. There is a garment so intimate with the body that it is called itself the body that is woven by the hands of God, that is indivisible. And we need to relax in that unity. I want you to know that no accusation can divide that body. You will see them over the years, same faces again and again and again. And you will know that is part of the indivisible body, the inseparable body. There is no quarrel that can divide that body. There is no change that can divide that body. There is no time that can outlast that body. There is no distraction that can take away the unity of that body because it is not of men. It is of God. It is not built out of our affections. It is built out of God's love. And you know the characteristic of love. You've read the characteristic of love. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. As for prophecy, it'll pass away. <laughs> Tongues, they'll cease. Knowledge, it'll pass away. No faith, Hope and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. There is a body indivisible, woven by God, seamless in its makeup. Relax in that unity. The Bible, though, goes on to describe another fact about this particular clothing. It says in verse 24, They said therefore to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. In other words, let's roll the dice and see who wins it. There was not only fairness among thieves, there was greed among thieves. And it says, and this is John's commentary, it says that the scripture might be fulfilled, 
they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, I want you to do something. If you have your scriptures with you, turn back to Psalm 22. I want to teach you something very important. In the Old Testament, there are prophecies of the Messiah, written hundreds of years before his birth, and of not only his life, but of his death. Now, the reason that these are important is, number one, because we can see that the, that the events in Jesus' life were no accident. They were predicted. They were foreseen by God. And in order to accurately interpret those events, you should know the details of these. For example, many of you have heard the, one of the gospel stories uh, um, um, write down the fact that Jesus from the cross cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now I have heard many times the interpretation of that is this. It must be this. That Jesus in his human frailty and pain for a moment felt divided from God. That Jesus, because he was so covered with the sins of the world, there was a momentary separation between him and his father and out of that pain and loss. That was a cry of agony and despair. I do not want to discount that interpretation, but I think there's a better one, for me at least. I want you to read the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Could it be that Jesus never was Divided from the Father, no matter how many sins were laid upon him. Could it be that even in his agony, even in his humanness, no, especially in his agony and his humanness, he still announced that he was the Messiah that the Jews had been looking for all these years. And he announced it by reciting a line from a messianic psalm that all of them, would have known. Could it be that was not a, cr a cry of agony so much as a pronouncement of the fulfillment of prophecy? I believe it could, and I believe it was. But go on with me now, and it says in other parts of this, various descriptions of what we're about to read. There's a part that we're about to read that says, I'm thirsty. Look at verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and thou, thou dost lay me in the dust of death. In other words, I'm thirsty. Read on. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have, has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. How precise can you get? I can count all my bones. Next week I will describe to you the process of crucifixion. And what happens physiologically when one is crucified? So that you will not be surprised that Mary was very slow to recognize Jesus when he was resurrected. But read on with me now. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. There's that scripture. Why is it so important to understand that the crucifixion was a fulfillment of scripture? Well, I'll tell you one reason. If you can believe that the crucifixion was no accident, that the pain and trauma that Jesus was going through 
was something that God not only saw, but something that God had a hand in to put Jesus exactly where he needed to be to fulfill his purpose. Maybe you can believe the same thing about yourself. Maybe you can believe what you're going through right now is no accident. Maybe what you can believe right now is that God saw this coming and that God has prepared even in this event to use what seems to be killing you to really fulfill your purpose. Some of you have told this story. You know, Becky and I, most of you know Becky and I live in an apartment complex that my sons affectionately refer to as the projects. There are many uh, characters in this place that we live, all of them a sermon illustration in themselves. (laughs) Some of them good, some of them not so good. But one day after a workout, I was down at the pool, kind of cooling off, and, 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 and there was a guy down there, I'd never seen him before, teaching his daughter to swim. And she was scared out of her mind. I mean, absolutely panicked. And he had his, his hands under her little body, you know, and she was flaying, trying to hang on to him, you know. And he just kept in a low voice. This was such a cool dad. He really knew what he was doing. And in a low voice, he kept saying, honey, daddy's got you. Daddy's got you. Dad's not going to let you go. Dad's not going to let you drown. Dad's not going to let anything happen to you. Daddy's got you. Don't you worry. Daddy's got you. Some of you need to hear that tonight, by the way. Daddy's got you. You're about this close to a panic. And you need to hear, Daddy's got you. Daddy's not going to let you go. And that's why God brought you here tonight, because you needed to hear that. So he had his arms under her, her, just like God's got his everlasting arms under you. And after she kind of calmed down, and she knew she wasn't going to get out of it by panicking, then he said something to her in a soft voice, that I think is one of the most excellent theological principles I've ever heard in my whole life. I'll never forget it as long as I live. He looked at her and he said, Honey, the water is not your enemy. The water is what will hold you up. There's a lesson. You know what you're going through right now that you think is going to take you down? It's not your enemy. That very thing is what's going to hold you up. That very thing is what's going to help you fulfill the purpose God has for your life. It is not your enemy. This is not a surprise to God. You are not at a loss. He's got you. He's not letting you go. You got to remember that. The cross was not the enemy of Christ. It is what lifted him up into his purpose. The same is true with you. It will hurt. But it will not take you down. Read on with me. Because we come to the central point. The central point is not Jesus' crucifixion. It is the accomplishment of his crucifixion. And if we pay very close attention to Jesus, you will see that he is paying very close attention to those he loves. It says in verse 25, Therefore the soldiers did these things, but there were standing by the cross of Jesus his mother, And his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mothers and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. 
And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. How cool is it that Jesus, the son, who was dying for the sins of the world, still wanted to protect his mama, still was looking out for his mama. And in a very practical sense, in a very practical demonstration as an example to us, was taking very good physical care of those who had been given him to love. But I want to tell you something even more than that. He did it while he was in the greatest of pain. And while he was enduring the deepest of wounds. You know that's what love costs, don't you? You know love inflicts pain. And that is not to its discredit. That is its essence of heroism. Years ago, I read a story about a little boy who had moved into a neighborhood with his mother. The mother was terribly disfigured. She was repulsive to look at because she had scars all over her face and all over her arms. She had worked very hard to raise this boy. And the boy loved her. And one day, as he was playing with his friends, his friends caught sight of the mother. She didn't go out much. And boys been boys. You know what kids are. Just looked at this kid and said, your mother is so ugly. And he went into the story that it sounded like he had told repeatedly over and over again. He said, you know, when I was a baby, there was a fire. And my mother came into my room and wrapped me up in a blanket. And she carried me through the fire. She got burned very badly. But the fire never touched me. There are a lot of things I love about my mother. But the scars are probably what I love the best. It hurts to love. You get scars when you love. But the scars are the best part. They are the marks of how you have loved. And here is Jesus in his pain, doing something for his mother in a literal and, and physically immediate sense that he is doing for us all. Because you see, what Jesus did from the cross for his mother, he did through the cross for us all. He provided us with the protection that we needed from the, hells, the, from the flames of hell. He provided us from the provision, with the provision we needed to not lay in our own sin. <laughs> with the power that we needed to walk out of our sin. He was taking care of us through that pain. And the last little few verses pictures him on that cross. And that's what we really need to do as we go into this communion time. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. Now, this not only fulfills Psalm 22 or is in correspondence with it, but I want you to remember the last time he says that in this gospel. He's sitting on a well, and up comes a woman from Samaria, unacceptable 
to people like him. But Jesus has always had a thing for unacceptable people. Glory be to God for that. And he will speak to her when no one else does. And what does he say to her? Give me a drink. And then after she does, he says, you know, if you had known who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have requested a drink from me to give you the living water that wells up through which you will never be thirsty. He still offers that tonight. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And when Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Tetelestai is the Greek word. It's one word. And it, it's a derivative of teleos. It, 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 it means Purpose. It comes from the word purpose. And what this means is, and, and the correct way to interpret this, is not, I am so weak now I'm going to die. What I want you to understand is what it really meant. It meant, now I have accomplished with this, with my death, I have accomplished perfect love. I have finished my course. It is the same type of finish that, 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 that one has when he breaks the ribbon at the end of a marathon. Only with this win, we all win. It is that kind of accomplishment. It is that kind of, now I've done it. And the Bible says, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. As we go into this sacrament, that's what we need to see. That price, that complete and perfect love, and what he paid so that we could have that victory. A long time ago, I read a story of a monk who lived during the Middle Ages. And he was actually the most popular man in the territory. Everybody loved this guy. He was a humble little guy that just wanted to serve people. Hardly ever said anything. Just went around trying to fill, fulfill needs and, and, and just, just love people. Love just serving. So it was very strange that one day he would tell some people that he was helping. You know, tonight, <coughs> I'm going to give the perfect sermon about God's love that ever was. That was so strange to hear from his mouth because he never talked about himself. But because everybody loved him and everybody was very curious about what the most perfect sermon about God's love ever could be. All of them went to the church and they waited for him to preach that sermon. And they waited all afternoon. And, and finally, the son, as they were sitting here and he was sitting up front, not moving, the son moved in a position, it was setting, and moved into a position where it just poured into the stained glass windows. And so the whole sanctuary was bathed with this beautiful color. And they all thought to themselves, well, now, now he can preach about God's love. I mean, now the atmosphere is just right. But he didn't. He waited until the sun had completely set. And the only light in the sanctuary came from three candelabras 
Finally, the monk got up and went to one of those candelabras and picked out a single candle and carried it to the life-size statue of Jesus on the cross. He didn't say a word. He just held the light up by the nail driven through his feet. And then he held the light up by the pierced hands. And then he held the light up by the open wound on his side. And after a few moments, he replaced the candle and sat down. They had experienced the most perfect sermon on the most perfect love that they had never heard. Tonight, as we go into this sacrament, that's what we need to picture. Pray with me. God, help us to look up. There are so many distractions in life, but help us to look up. And when we look up, let us see you. Let us feel your presence, your intimacy. Let us be very careful with the robe that you have woven into your body. But let all of your body look up to pay attention to you. Not to ourselves, not to our hurts, not to our business, but to you. And the great price you paid for our freedom, for our future, for our nearness to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.